As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hello, Internet friends. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Hello, and welcome to Brewing After Hours. On this episode, we're uncovering the truth about whether or not there was a direct connection between witches and female brewers between the 14th and 17th centuries. But before we get into that, I think we need to start from the very beginning. Yeah, ancient times. If you listen to episode one, where I got into the history of beer in ancient cultures, you know that women were some of the first brewers. Back then, they were known as brewsters, a wonderful term that I hope we can get back into the zeitgeist. Brewing was a domestic task, much like making bread, so like most domestic tasks, it fell to the women of the family to provide the beer. Women have been brewing for at least the past 4,000 years. Many of the deities for beer were actually female themselves. The most popular, Ninkasi, was the Sumerian goddess of beer, and the hymn to Ninkasi is actually just an extremely old beer recipe. Women's involvement lasted even into colonial America, where there were female tavern keepers and brewers, and of course, your household brewer. You might wonder, if you're not a home brewer anyway, why was there so much beer being made? Beer was consumed more than water at this time. Water was seriously considered bad for your health, and they weren't wrong. This was the time before many viruses and bacteria were discovered, and clean water was hard to come by. In the late 1700s, the male-dominated brewing industry that we recognize today began, and many brewsters stopped making beer. That leads us into our main subject today, an article written by the Smithsonian Magazine titled Women Dominated Beer Brewing Until They Were Accused of Being Witches states, Much of the iconography we associate with witches today, from the pointy hat to the broom, may have emerged from the connection to female brewers. So this story goes into more detail on how women would travel with their brews and cauldrons and wear pointy hats to get the attention of potential customers while at market. In the 16th century, there were stricter gender norms in Europe during the Protestant Reformation period, a religious, political, and cultural movement that would define the era. The male brewers decided to seize the moment and in order to lose their competition, they accused female brewers of witchcraft, further alleging these women were brewing potions and not booze. 
This became very dangerous for women as they could be prosecuted or killed. I mean, we've all seen the movie Hocus Pocus. Since this article posted, it's been picked up by numerous media outlets while also being shared through social media in beer enthusiast and homebrewer groups. While the Smithsonian story doesn't quote any historians in the exact field of topic, like beer or witches, it does link to various podcasts and articles, but still no actual interview with a historian to help offer some real factual evidence in context. A few days after the article went live, Smithsonian added an editor's note stating, on March 10th, 2021, that this article has been updated to acknowledge that it isn't definitively known whether alewives inspired some of the popular iconography associated with witches today. If you've seen my Halloween special on YouTube, I talk about this very topic and the witchy motifs that could be attributed to early Brewsters. With that said, I'm here to learn just like you guys are, and every time I'm proven wrong, it just makes me smarter in the future. So I'm excited to learn the truth with you today. So here we are. Is it fact or fiction? We're going to hear from historian and archaeologist Dr. Christina Wade Donegan, who has done extensive research on the history of women in beer, as well as the history of beer in Ireland in the Viking Age. Christina is going to help us get down to the bottom of all these myths circulating about whether or not the first witch accusations were inspired by medieval alewives. I'm here now with Dr. Christina Wade Donegan, who is also the president of the Ladies Craft Beer Society of Ireland, co-host of the Beer Ladies podcast, and founded the project Brachiatrix, Latin for Brewster and Alewife, which covers the history of women in beer. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thanks for being here so we can debunk these myths that are floating around. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. First, I'd love to uh, let our listeners know how you found your way into becoming a historian of beer. It's a really good question. I sort of fell into it, actually. So I came to Ireland to do my PhD in medieval Irish history, and I wrote about uh, Viking burial practice in Ireland. And while I was researching Viking burial practice, I learned a lot about brewing and brewing culture and magic, actually, and sort of the combination between the two. And I also started the Ladies Craft Beer Society of Ireland just sort of to make some friends and to have something to kind of talk about. And I just decided to sort of merge my interests. And so here I am. <laughs> I feel like that's how a lot of people get into beer is just trying to find a community and do something with your spare time. So you've researched and have also written about the history of medieval alewives. So I'm sure it's extremely frustrating to see the Peace and Smithsonian um, on their website getting a ton of press and circulating pretty much everywhere. I know I heard about it from Reddit and Facebook, whatever. For our listeners, the article I'm referring to is called Women Dominated Beer Brewing Until They Were Accused of Being Witches. And you can find a link to it on floorbrewing.com under the podcast section. So Christina, can you share with us your take on the story and your insight into the history to help clear things up a bit? Yeah, so there's a lot of these such articles. There's a Smithsonian one, and actually the History Channel did something a couple years ago, which actually kind of prompted me to writing this in the first place. So it, there's kind of a conflation of sort of two ideas. Uh, one being that our modern stereotypical pop culture witch is 
from a medieval alewife garb or the the way that a medieval alewife would have been dressed. And sort of the second part of it is that there was some sort of pan-European idea or drive to push women out of brewing all at the same time by accusations of witchcraft. And this happened all over Europe. These are the ideas. And yeah, and they're both, the, the first one is absolutely not true. And the second one is not really true, but possible. I know like a lot of the iconography associated with witches has been said to come directly from Brewsters themselves. So can you actually get into where the witch iconography actually came from? Yeah, absolutely. The whole concept of that we have this modern pop culture witch, you know, with the pointy black hat and the broom and her, you know, friendly black cat familiar really dates to the 18th century and children's books. So this is sort of when we first see it. Um, and it doesn't really have a connection to medieval alewives. We know that in the medieval period, so we're talking 500 to 1500. So the medieval period, when we're really talking about these medieval alewives, witches are portrayed as just dressing like normal women, usually not even having a hat at all, nothing to that extent, and actually even up into the 1600s as well. So the pointy hat doesn't really come into play until this these 18th century children's books. Now, where it comes from, we're not sure. There's not a scholarly consensus, though there's several really compelling arguments. So some have said that it's an exaggeration of a dunce's cap worn in a royal court, or some have said that it might come from classical drawings of Diana. I think probably the two more plausible explanations, um, one comes from Peter Burke, and he talks about it basically being from a migration of stereotypes from Jewish people and coming from really, really horrific anti-Semitism. Um, which just seems extremely convincing with his argument. I really highly recommend um, his, his work, um, eyewitnessing the use of images as historical evidence. Uh, the other convincing argument I think that there is, is that it comes from these everyday hats. There's two sort of everyday hats that were popularized in the 16th and 17th century. Um, they were worn by noble European women and they look almost identical to the witch's hat. They're black with a with a brim and they go up and some of them are sort of flat at the top, like go to a flat skinny top and some of them are pointed. Getting to kind of the second part that you were talking about, about um, the idea that like all women were pushed out of brewing at the same time. Um, can you kind of give us a timeline of the decline of women in brewing? Yeah, I think that's that's really hard <laughs> um, because it sort of really depends on, it's really context specific. So in England, uh, Judith Bennett wrote an amazing book on Brewsters and Alewives and how that they were gradually pushed out. Usually think about like a 200, 300 year period after the Black Death. So after 1348 and kind of by the 17th century, mostly, you know, all but gone, except in certain spaces in certain areas. My specialty is in Ireland and we see a kind of completely different thing there. Whereas like in 1610, we have Barnaby Rich coming to Dublin and saying that every householder's wife was a brewer and that they all had taverns. So 
And even within England or within these places where women were pushed out, I mean, women still held certain positions in certain towns or there were pockets where it wasn't as successful. It's really context specific. And even in Ireland, I mean, Waterford passed a law. Women and girls couldn't sell ale because they were concerned about um, sex work. They, They were concerned about being a prevalence of sex work. Uh, because this was viewed very negatively at the time. So, but was it successful? Not really, because, you know, later on, we probably see that it's, it's, it hasn't really worked. It's really, really context specific. But if we're talking about England, I think we follow Judith Bennett's timeline there. Really interesting. I definitely was like totally convinced by this article and everything, and then started seeing the backlash about it and how actual historians are saying, no, that's not true. Why would it be picked up? Right. So I understand why the myth is so appealing, this idea of alewives and witchcraft. It's sort of, you want it to make sense, especially because we know that there are all these horrible presentations or depictions of alewives. So for example, in in Ludlow in England, we have St. Lawrence's Church, which was founded in the 11th century and has been built several times over. But they have these misericordia, which is these hinged chairs. Um, they're supposed to aid a person who's long at prayer. They can, they can have a seat. And one of the intricate carvings on these chairs is a elaborate headdress, this ale mug, and she's being dragged off to hell with this, you know, this bagpipe wielding demon. And then we have, of course, the tunning of Eleanor Rumming, and she is just depicted horrifically um she uses hens droppings in her ale and she uses it to make a spell to get your husband to want to have sex with you so you know there there are these sorts of ideologies that are floating around so it's it is something that kind of i can see the appeal but there are parts to it so the part is yes we know that they've portrayed alewives in a misogynistic way. So for example, in 1641, we have an unnamed widow brewing at the Ludlow Castle Garrison who found her entire trade lost when a male competitor spread false rumors about herself and her business. So we do know that this was possible. Also, the problem is that those who were often accused of witchcraft are single or widowed or poor, and they're on the outskirts of town or the outskirts of the community. This overlaps with many alewives who were single, widowed, or poor. So sort of disentangling all this is very hard, if not impossible. One scholar tried. So we have Alan McFarlane, who conducted a study of accused witches um, from Essex, dating between 1560 and 1680. And he found only one woman, and her husband was accused of, or was listed as being a beer brewer. But this probably meant that they brewed together because we knew married couples brewing together was a really common phenomenon. But this evidence is really difficult to work with in assessing witches' relationships to alewives because it's only listing the husband's occupations. Women could have been brewing as de facto, disentangling this and trying to figure out if this was likely or if it happened is very difficult. But on that note, 
the witch craze, if, if we want to call it that way, the, the thing that kind of sparks in the popular imagination when you think of witch trials, that's an early modern phenomenon. So post-medieval, 1500 and beyond. And the most some of the most famous witch trials, in fact, the probably one of the most famous is the Pendle Witch Trials in England. And that's, you know, that's the 1600s. So this is not a medieval phenomenon. That said, there were witch trials in the medieval period, but just never to the extent that they are in the early modern period. And even at that, some places just really weren't invested in the witch trials. Scotland had a lot of witch trials, whereas they weren't as popular in Ireland. It wasn't as much of a thing. And there's a lot of scholarly debate as to why that's the case. Well, you have obviously written a ton on this topic. I was just reading um, one of the articles you wrote about this exact topic on brachiatrix. So can you tell us more about that project? It started with just wanting to learn more uh, for my own self. Um, While in the course of writing my book about Irish beer history, I encountered all these other really fascinating stories about women all over the world. And so I figured, well, you know, it might not go in my book or it might, but I really want to share this because this is really cool. And I think that's my my probably my frustration the most with these sort of articles that go around and say sort of these untrue stories because the real stories are so interesting. I would love to see a, a piece go viral about Eleanor Rumming and the tunning of Eleanor Rumming and John Skelton just basically writing this horrifically misogynistic diatribe against this poor woman who may or may not have existed, but she might have. And I think that's fascinating or this, you know, obsession with making, you know, with drawing alewives and demons together and carting them off to hell. Fascinating stuff. I just wish we talked about the truth, I think. And and I think also we we sometimes lose women's agency in these stories. Okay, men pushed women out of brewing. And it and it's just, again it's a story about what men did to women, but we don't hear stories about like Jillian so there's a there's an alewife in the medieval period um, called Jillian, and um, a man came by to basically tell her that she had to brew to these regulations, and this was in England, and she had to brew to these regulations, and she was basically like, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to brew how I've always been brewing, so thanks, bye. And so those, <laughs> those are the, the really interesting stories, or... There's a there's another story of an alewife in England who was cheating her customers by pouring like, I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's some amount of pitch at the bottom of her glasses. So like, you know, her customers had less ale than they thought they were having. These are really great stories. Let's write about these stories, I think. There's just an endless amount of content that you shouldn't have to make up this kind of stuff. <laughs> You are working on a book titled Filthy Queens, A History of Beer in Ireland. It would be great to hear how that's going, what kind of research you're doing. And I'm really interested on how you came to the title because I love it. (laughs) So, yes, though, the title is actually one of my favorites. So actually, I had mentioned earlier about in 1610, Barnaby Rich, the, the English ale, the English army captain coming to Dublin. And what he labeled um, the women who brewed in, in, in Dublin, he called them most filthy queens. 
and that he would not meddle with their honesties and that they were to be hated and abhorred totally. And the reason I pick that is not just because it's negative. It's because actually that went over like a lead balloon. And just a few short years later, he was forced to write an apology to the alewives in Dublin because their husbands did not like that. And so he apologized to them and said, oh, I don't mean you. I just mean the bad sort, those other alewives. Yeah, no one's buying that, Barnaby, but all right. But yeah, so my book is Irish beer history from medieval to modern. As I said before, I think there's amazing books out there about specific breweries or, or something of the case, but I kind of wanted to do sort of a general overview for a general audience, for not necessarily for academics, although I hope if you're an academic, you enjoy it too. So this is written a lot like my blog. It's very conversational. I tried to make it very accessible and include as many funny stories or scary stories as I possibly could. And also in that vein, I tried to include primary sources or I tried to include where you can find primary sources online yourself. So instead of things that are cut behind sort of a, a paywall or in a, in a library at a university, I tried to make sure that if there's a website or something where you can access a translation or something for yourself, that you could do that so you have that, those resources yourself and you can look at that data for yourself. That's super valuable. You find all those research papers and you're like, oh, this is really interesting. And you get like a one paragraph and then it's paywall and it's like, well, do I want to spend $35 on this research paper to just read it? Probably not. No, I completely agree with that. I think um, as an academic, I think that we have a responsibility to make sure that our research is out there for general consumption because otherwise things like myths happen and we can kind of see them floating all around. And I mean, to be on a very serious note, medieval history has a white supremacist problem. So, you know, medievalists in particular need to get our research out there and just debunk this stuff as much as possible. So really, it is a responsibility for academics to make sure that their research is accessible to people who want to read it. And most academics really feel that way. Yeah, I've seen people post on like Reddit, if you want a research paper, write to the author, because it's all the publishers making the money through those paywalls. Oh, yes. Academics do not make money on academic papers. We will happily send them to you. We will happily, and we will answer any questions. Seriously, email us, ask us questions. We are thrilled. I love it. Is there anything that you found surprising when you were researching Ireland's beer history that most of us wouldn't know? Ooh, great, good question. Very good. I think I was probably most surprised by how long women remained in the commercial brewing enterprise. And also how much beer funded war within Ireland, the wars of the colonies. So like the walls of Kilkenny were partially funded by tax on malt and beer, which I just think is wonderful. Like it's just an interesting little fact. I mean, it's not a great fact that there was war. It's really fascinating to see the role that ale and malt played in the creation of defenses in medieval Ireland. And we see sort of ale and later when beer is introduced, and that is hopped ale, they play a prominent role in war throughout the medieval and into the early modern period in the later in the early modern period when there's the rebellion in 1641, we see women being forced to brew ale, we see the armies demanding bread and beer. So this sort of idea that beer is sort of a central part of war to the point where it's mentioned so often in the, the king's roles and these sorts of things. I was 
aware that it was important, but I didn't realize how important. Yeah, it's like a wartime industry almost. Absolutely. Why did people drink more beer than water? And there's no clean water because didn't know the water was bad, but had a better time with beer typically because it's boiled. I just found that really interesting. I mean, it's common knowledge to some degree, but I was like, I need to have someone tell me this in writing. (laughs) It's another thing that I think people take can be quite mythical in nature because medieval people absolutely drank water and they drank it to a great extent. They did understand that there was possibly some association with water and disease, but not in the way that we think of, they had no concept of germ theory or anything like that. But we can see this sort of in the medieval period and like the Black Death, we know that in certain places they slaughtered groups of people with leprosy because they thought that they were poisoning the wells. So it's not that they think that there's a disease in there, this poison is what is hurting them. And then we also have sort of, I guess, probably one of the grandmothers of ale, that is Hildegard von Bingen, saying things about um, not drinking water when the snow is melted and to choose ale. One of the first things we see, for example, when the English colonize Ireland is um, they are looking for water and they need to find a safe source of water. So they're absolutely drinking water. Um, and, and that idea that it's diseased is, is a more modern concept. Again, I learned another new thing, dispelling myths right and left here today. Will you uh, let us know how the listeners can follow along and see what you're doing and anything new coming down the pipeline? Just the book that I'm slowly working away on. <laughs> oh boy. So you can find me at Brachiatrix on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm also on Beer Ladies Pod talking about history and craft beer. Thanks again for joining me. This was awesome. And I love learning new things and learning what I don't know <laughs> more than anything. Now, since we've been covering the history of women in beer, we thought we'd take a more modern approach for the last bit of the show and try some beers brewed by women here in Los Angeles. I was at the Hermosillo in Highland Park, and actually the woman behind the scenes, Ash Elliott's uh, secondary office, before COVID hit anyway. So the Hermosillo is where Highland Park Brewery got started, and now they have a brew house and tap room in Chinatown, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's totally my vibe. So we thought it would make sense to review them first, since we have such a history with that brewery. The beer we're drinking is a collaboration with the Pink Boots Society and was created by the women of Highland Park Brewery. It's a hazy West Coast IPA titled Mas Chingona, Spanish for badass woman who chooses to live her life by her own terms. So I think we have to address that yes, this term has been known to be a swear word, but it's also a term that has been embraced by Latinas and expresses power, strength, and sisterhood among the Latina community. And that also goes in line with what being a part of the Pink Poot Society as an organization that started in 2006 by female brewers who wanted to live by their own terms and connect with women doing the same. The beer's title and design was a collaborative effort between the brewery's assistant general manager and Pink Boots board member Blanca Quintero and the brewery's co-founder Tiffany Coons. I think this beer really represents the changes that are happening at this specific brewery in terms of diversity and inclusion, and that globally, breweries are starting to address and embrace. Blanca was so on point in an interview she was part of on the Highland Park Brewery Instagram. 
She said this beer is a great representation of where our brewery is today. And I wish Blanca was here so I could give her a major high five because this is a huge step in making real changes in the industry. And I am so excited to try this beer. So let's get into it. Alrighty. Okay, so this beer is like a very light straw. It has a beautiful white head. It is slightly hazy. You know, it's not a haze bomb. It smells, you know, it's just a straight up like kind of uh, West Coast IPA kind of smell. Um, straight hops. Uh, I don't know if I can pick out any, but I'm like... Something in the back of my mind is saying that it's cashmere, which I could be totally wrong. I could just be thinking about the other Pink Boots blend. Oh, wait. I think the Pink Boots blend actually does have cashmere in it. It does. So I'm not just pulling this out of my butt. All right. Yeah. So when I was in Yakima the last time, I actually got to be there for a cashmere harvest. And that is what this beer smells like. When you walked into the rooms and the fields, it was just kind of like a hop explosion in your face, and it smelled just like this beer. For a hazy beer, it's actually pretty dry. It kind of drinks more like a West Coast IPA. Pretty dry finish. The hops definitely like linger for a very long time. And, you know, it's not overly hopped. I feel like a lot of times when you get into the West Coast range, you experience kind of more of like a bitter punch, where this reads more like a New England because it doesn't have that. It's more about the aromatics. It's just really easy to drink and delicious. I would like to give a big congratulations to the women of Highland Park Brewery. I think did a fantastic job. Keep at it. Keep brewing more. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. And I will definitely be on the waiting list for it because this was actually kind of hard to find. Before we get into this next beer, I want to mention that we'll be doing a series of episodes on the history of women in beer, and part two will be coming out in the next few weeks. On part two, we'll be speaking with official Pink Boots Society historian and author Tara Nuren. Our next beer is The Future is Female by Eagle Rock Brewery, and it's an English summer ale at 5.3% ABV. This beer is in honor of Eagle Rock Brewery and co-founder Ting Su's Women's Beer Forum. So I've actually been to this forum. It is an amazing time. There's so many women who are in the brewery world, home brewers or just beer nerds, basically, who come to this, join together, get to drink beer, talk to different brewers, and anyone else can actually join. It's not only female, even though it is a women's beer forum. You have panels with huge name breweries talking about their beers, what they're up to. You get to try limited edition beers, and it's just a really good time. And this forum has made a huge impact in Los Angeles and beyond. It's really been an outlet and resource for women to come together, whether working in the industry or not. So the Women's Beer Forum is celebrating their 10-year anniversary, and that means that the brewery is celebrating its 11-year anniversary. I have Future is Female, and this is their limited edition for the Women's Beer Forum 10th anniversary. And this is an English summer ale, which I actually don't know what to expect. This is definitely on the clearer side, though. There is a slight haze, but it is a more golden color, very white head. 
It's really lovely beer. Oh my gosh, it smells like an English beer. Oh, it smells awesome. So this is definitely malt forward in the nose. I pick up some caramel malts, um, but you can tell it's a really light base. This is exactly what I want to be drinking, honestly. So it's got high carbonation, which kind of makes it drink like a soda, but it has a really deep malt flavor. And when I say deep, I don't mean like it's like a stout. It's more like there's different levels to it. You definitely get the cracker notes, biscuit, but then a little bit of caramel underneath everything, which really makes the sweetness come through. Because if you just have the biscuit and cracker, you know, it can be a little undersweet. But I am a huge fan of caramel malts, as you guys know, because I throw caramel malts into almost all of my beers. There's a very slight bitterness. You know, it's nothing overpowering. I get almost no hop flavor. This is perfect to, like, drink on a summer's day. You know, it's fulfilling, but I don't think it's going to knock me on my butt. Yeah, I'm going to definitely go pick up some more cases of these because this is delightful. As I always say, women are great brewers, so I hope you guys can possibly try some of these. Get your hands on them while you can. And cheers. Drinking beer, it makes you happy. It makes me happy too. It's truly manna from the gods of Satan. Let's raise a toast, drink it up, sip it down, gallop it. Too sweet. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.